preparing our house, we worked really hard to get, Sarah worked really hard to get the guest bedroom all set up and make sure it was nice and comfortable for him. And we got everything prepared and everything ready for him. But I think the one thing that we couldn't prepare for uh, was my two-year-old son. Like, he was the wild card in this situation. So Saturday night, the evangelist got in, everything went fine. The house was comfortable, everything was perfect. He had everything he needed. Then Sunday morning, everything went fine. We came, we preached, or he preached, and we had a great service. And then Sunday night, he was here at the church already. My wife and I were getting ready to get Nicholas and Michael ready. And we're literally on our way out the door. And I walked by the bathroom uh, that the evangelist was using, the guest bathroom at our house there. And I just happened to look in it, and I noticed that the whole thing was just covered in toilet paper. Like literally, toilet paper all over. And I don't know why, but he just loved to unroll the entire roll of toilet paper and stuff it all down the toilet. Um, that was like his fun thing to do. So I see this mess and I'm like, oh, I don't need this right now. I'm on my way to go to church, right? And so real quickly, I grab the plunger and I'm trying to clean this up before he gets back and after the service and I'm plunging and I'm plunging and it's just the toilet's not unclogging, right? I'm like, I don't have time for this. I got to go to church. I'm like, it's toilet paper. It'll be fine. You know, it's not going to hurt anything. So Sunday, Sunday night, we go to church. Uh, we come back and I'm plunging Sunday night. I'm plunging and it's just not working. And so then I resort to Google, and I Google, I think we got a picture here, how uh, home remedies for unclogging a toilet. And I see, oh, baking soda and vinegar, perfect. I love doing science experiments in my toilet. This will be exciting. I think I used like half of that bag of baking soda and that entire thing of vinegar there. And literally, I'm trying, and the toilet is still not getting unclogged. Well, it's late, it's Sunday night, tomorrow's going to be a busy day. I'm like, I need to get some sleep, so I, I'm sorry, Brother Vic Yeldrin, you know, would you mind using the bathroom downstairs? Oh, no, that'd be fine, that'd be fine. So Monday morning, we get up, we go about a routine. I go and I get one of those toilet snakes. Y'all familiar with that thing? It's like the plastic thing, and it's got the snake, and you pull it down there, and you pull it out. And so Monday night, we get back from the service, and I'm, I'm, I'm snaking the toilet, right? I'm twisting, and I'm twisting. And finally, I pull this thing out, and toilet paper is not what comes out. It's my son's Linus toy. Like, Linus was down the toilet. And so I'm like, well, well, at least I'm glad I got it out, right? So I go to flush the toilet expecting a flush. Never had I been so happy to see a flushing toilet, and it doesn't flush. (laughs) I'm like, what in the world? And at this point, I I don't know if any of you other guys are like this, but there's just something that snaps in your head, and you're like, I don't care what it's going to take. I'm going to get this toilet fixed. It might be ego. It's probably pride, right? But at the same time, my son, he has a whole peanut set like this. And we start looking around, and all of a sudden we realize... Charlie Brown is gone. And I start thinking, Charlie Brown is in the toilet. So this is me trying to save Charlie Brown. Like, literally, I'm standing on the tub and on the counter pulling for all I'm worth. And Charlie Brown ain't coming. So, again, go to Google. How to take apart a toilet. And literally, I took this whole toilet apart, and I had to run the snake up the bottom of the toilet. And we finally got out Charlie Brown. There's the toilet taken apart. We were prepared, but we were not prepared for my son, right? Have you ever had a time in your life where you just didn't feel prepared? I can remember, that's, that's a silly story, but I can kind of remember on a more serious note when Nicholas was first born. Just the feeling of fear and the unpreparedness I felt to be a father. I thought, man, I am, I'm not ready to be a dad, and yet here's this brand new baby, I got to make sure this kid stays alive. I got to raise him to love the Lord. I just remember feeling the pressure of that. And I remember feeling very unprepared. Have you ever felt like God was leading you into something, but you just didn't feel ready for it? You didn't feel prepared for it? Well, what I'd like to propose to us this morning 
is that prayer is often the missing, missing ingredient in our preparation for the building work God wants to do in our lives. The theme for our message is simply this. God's building work requires preparation in prayer. God's building work requires preparation in prayer. As we saw last week, Nehemiah's country was in great distress and in the middle of some very agonizing suffering. We also saw how Nehemiah reacted to that suffering. He went to God in prayer. And not only is this an appropriate response to suffering, it's also the, uh, the necessary first step for what God was about to do. God was about to do a great building work in the nation of Israel's life, and Nehemiah starts that. He prepares for that by praying. So let's see how Nehemiah prays. At the beginning of verse number 6 and the beginning of verse number 11, there's a similarity in those two verses. The Bible says, Nehemiah in his prayer says, Let thine ear now be attentive. Let thine eyes be open that thou mayest hear us the prayer of thy servant. And he's saying, God, would you, would you give me your ear? God, would you listen to me? Would you look down on me? God, I pray that you would hear my prayer. I pray that you would hear what I'm about to ask you. Verse number 11, O Lord, I beseech you, I beg you, God, hear me. Let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants. He prays this at the beginning of the end, so you can kind of say the bookends of his prayer are him asking God, to listen. He's asking for God to listen to what he's about to pray for, which leads us to our first thought this morning, Nehemiah's access to prayer. He's asking God for his attention. And this was common in Old Testament prayers, especially under the Mosaic Covenant, which Nehemiah was still under. You see, the presence of God and having the ear of God was not a promise like it is for us who are under the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, certain sacrifices had to be done. Certain uh, religious ceremonies had to be kept. There was there was conditions and there were things that the children of Israel had to do so that they could experience the presence of God. But then comes Jesus, who lives a perfectly sinless life, and he was sacrificed for us. All the conditions that are required to go into the presence of God, Jesus met for us. And if this is a new concept for you, let me encourage you. About a year ago, we did a study on this here at Ambassador called the New Covenant. Let me encourage you to go through and just re-listen to those as you have time so that you can better understand the new covenant. But because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, because he lived a perfectly sinless life, because he was willing to die in our place and be sacrificed for our sins, we have direct access to God. We don't have to ask God to hear us. He promised that he would. We don't have to wonder whether or not we can go into his presence because of what Jesus Christ did. We have the ear of God. He is our Father, and he delights in praying to us. He gives us his undivided attention all the time. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have not a high priest, Jesus, which can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Jesus knew what it meant to suffer. Jesus knew what it meant to be tempted, but it goes on to say that he was without sin. And because he was without sin, he could be that perfect sacrifice. And because of that, Hebrews tells us that we can go boldly into the throne room of grace. We can go boldly into the presence of Jesus. Why? Because we have his attention. We have his ear. He is our heavenly father, and he delights it when we go to him in prayer. We don't have to ask God, God, would you please hear me? He promises that he will. We have his ear. We can go to God in prayer at any time because of the finished work of Christ. And because of this, prayer is not so much about getting God's attention. We don't, we don't have to ask God's attention. We already have God's attention. Prayer is not so much about getting God's attention, but it's more about God getting our attention. Sometimes God will allow circumstances into our life because he wants us to pray. He wants to get our attention. Uh, several times with my son, Nicholas, when he's, when he's 
not being the little angel that we all know him to be, right? And I'm having to talk to him, and he's like not wanting to look me in the eye because he knows he's in trouble. And sometimes I'll literally just cut my hands right around his face and I say, buddy, give me your attention. And sometimes God will allow difficulties into our life because he wants our attention. Prayer is not so much about God getting God's attention, but about God getting ours. We have God's attention. We are his children. Oftentimes, he will try to get ours so that he can prepare us for the building work that he wants to do by praying. God wants our attention so that we can prepare for the work that he is about to do. But let's move on. Not only do we see Nehemiah's access to prayer, let's take a a look at what verse number 6 continues to say. Verse 6b, he says, Which I pray before thee now day and night. Nehemiah was praying day and night. Nehemiah was so burdened. His heart was so heavy for what needed to be done in Israel that he was literally praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, praying day and night, which leads us to our next thought, his fervency in prayer. This was not a one-and-done type of prayer. He didn't just like, all right, I threw up a prayer, now we're good to go. No, he was so burdened, he was so desperate to see God work that he said, I literally pray day and night. He labored in prayer. He wanted so badly to God, for God to restore his country that he prayed day and night. He was fervent in prayer. Now, oftentimes when we talk about fervency in prayer, we kind of get the wrong mental picture. We picture making our face look real grimaced and sour and trying real hard. And if I say, dear Heavenly Father, enough times, and if I say just enough times, you know, God, just do this, God, just do that. If I, if I do it and if I'm intense enough, then God's going to answer my prayer exactly the way I want. That's not what being fervent in prayer means. And just because we do all those things doesn't mean God's going to answer our prayers the way we want. We still have to pray according to his will. We'll talk about that in a minute. But being fervent in prayer, really, it just comes from a place of desperation. It comes from a place of urgency. Um, the Bible says in James five sixteen, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. That phrase, effectual fervent, it means urgently. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of desperation. Like, I so badly need God to work. Sometimes we can also get the idea that this is something that super Christians do, right? Like your average Joe, they, you know, this is a little bit different, right? But notice the example he gives us in verse 17 of James 5. He says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He struggled just like you and I do. He had the same temptations that you and I do. He was a man of like passions. He was just like you and me. He was just an average guy, but he prayed earnestly. He prayed urgently, and the Bible tells us that God answered his prayer. This isn't something just for the super-Christian. This is something for the desperate Christian. Fervency in prayer is less about being a super-Christian and more about just being in a state of desperation. God, I'm so desperate for you to work. I, I, I can't do anything but pray. God, I know I don't have it all together, and I'm begging you to work. God, I'm desperate for you. I need you. The question before us is not, can we grimace and be intense in prayer? The question before us is, are we desperate for God? Are we desperate for him to build? Are we desperate for him to build us up on our spiritual life? Yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast, pastor said, prayer is a natural manifestation of the heart that is desperate for God. Are we desperate to see him work in our family? Are we desperate to see him work in our marriage? See, this isn't about having it all together. This is realizing you don't have it all together. And you are incredibly desperate for God. When we are desperate for God, we will be fervent in prayer to prepare for the building work that he is about to do in our lives. We see Nehemiah's access to prayer. We see his fervency in prayer. But look at the end of verse number six and verse number seven. 
He says, which I pray before thee now day and night. There's that urgency. There's that desperation. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. We have not kept thy commandments, nor thy statutes, nor thy judgments, which thou commanded thy thy servant Moses. Here we see Nehemiah confessing the national sins of his country, which leads us to our third thought this morning, his confession in prayer. Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not any kind of a religious leader. So technically, this wasn't even his job. Technically speaking, he was not the one that was supposed to God and make confessions for sin. You read the Old Testament. They had, the priests had ceremonies that they were supposed to do to offer confession. But Nehemiah was so desperate that he said, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I so badly want to see God do something. I'm willing to own this. I'm willing to be a part of this. That's why he says, I and my father's house have sinned. He said, we're just as guilty because we're a part of this thing. We are in this nation. We're fellow Israelites, and we have all collectively sinned against you. You can see this responsibility really growing from a sense of desperation. You know what I like to do, because there can be a lot of confusion about confession and repentance. A lot of different uh, religious traditions will teach a lot of different things. I'd like to just give you a very simple and brief biblical definition for what confession and repentance is. Confession and repentance is simply acknowledging and agreeing with God about your sin. Now this would include changing your mind about your sin. It would look something like this. Confession may look like saying to God, God, I changed my mind that I need this sin. Oftentimes when we sin, it's because we feel like we have to have that and we don't really need God. And so confession will be, God, I'm changing my mind. I'm acknowledging this sin. I'm changing my mind that I need it. God, all I need is you. I'm agreeing with you. All I need is you. I agree with you that this sin doesn't bring you glory. I agree with you that this is not an act of love to my neighbor. I'm changing my mind about this and I'm turning away and I'm turning towards you. Confession and repentance is simply just acknowledging your sin and agreeing with God about your sin. It's you getting real with God. Now, in the context of our text, we find Nehemiah confessing the sins of his country. So real briefly, I'd like to talk about this, about the importance of this on a national level. Now, we are obviously not Israelites. We are not a part of the nation of Israel. And so how do we do this as Americans? Well, first of all, and understand what I mean when I say this, America is not under the blood of Jesus the way we as individual Christians are. The church of God is God's chosen people, which is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, land, the whole gamut. But as Americans, we should spend time praying for the salvation of the people in our country. We should spend time praying for our elected officials and those who hold government offices. And we should confess and repent to God the sins that the nation of America commits. It should grieve our hearts like it did Nehemiah's. We should be so broken and so desperate for the spiritual state of our country that we go to God and say, God, I just confess, America has sinned. We should confess. You may say, but I'm not the one actually committing the sin. I don't really think Nehemiah was either. But he so badly wanted to see God change the situation that he was willing to take ownership of it. He was willing to take responsibility for it by confessing it to God by including himself among his fellow Israelites, he was willing to confess on a national level. I think this is also important for us on an individual level when we want God to do a building work in our lives. As an individual who is under the blood of Jesus Christ, confession and repentance still play an important role. When we placed our faith and trust in Christ, God forgave us for sins past, present, and future. 
When God looks at you as a Christian, your standing with God is forgiven. Forgiven, forgiven. Burn that deep in your heart. Burn that deep in your soul. You are forgiven. And because we are forgiven, I don't really believe we need to go to God and ask God to forgive us of our sins. He already did. Sometimes when I just catch myself going through the motions of prayer, I'll say, God, would you please forgive me? It's like the Holy Spirit just says, Nick, I already did. You are forgiven. Now, that being said, I do still believe confession and repentance are important because confession and repentance are vital to experiencing the forgiveness that God has already given me. Confession and repentance, acknowledging my sin, agreeing with God about my sin, getting real with God is one of the ways I experience the forgiveness that he's already given me. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a great book on prayer called Prayer. And in it, he said, to the degree you shed the reality of self-sufficiency, to that degree, your prayer life will become richer and deeper. So the more real you get with God, the more rich and enjoyable and deep your prayer life will be. And it's not like we need to be afraid to do this. It's not like God doesn't know. It's not like when we confess our sin, God's up in heaven and say, oh man, I'm so glad you told me that. I had no idea. He knows. And he still loves us. Confession and repentance are just how we get real with God. Because Nehemiah was praying for God to, do a, a, to, to build on a national level, he had to get real with God about where his nation was at. And if we want God to do a building work in our lives, we're going to have to get real with God with where we're at. And it's okay. He loves us. His forgiveness covers that. But we must shed that self-sufficiency. We must get real with God. If we're going to prepare for the building work God wants to do in our lives, we'll need to get real with God in our prayer. So we see his access to prayer. We see his fervency in prayer. We see his confession in prayer. Now earlier I mentioned real briefly that we still need to pray according to God's will. How do we do that? What's that look like? Well, let's look at verses number 8, 9, and 10. Nehemiah says, Remember, I beseech thee. I beg you, God, would you please remember? Get this. Would you remember the word that thou commanded thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast unto the uttermost part of heaven, that doesn't literally mean heaven, that just means all around the world. Though there were cast of you all around the world, yet will I gather them from thence. I will bring them into the place which I have chosen to set my name. And he goes on and says, now these are your servants. God, we're not talking about just, God, these are your servants. These are your people. You have redeemed them with great power and by thy strong hand. Our next thought this morning, we see Nehemiah's reasoning in prayer. He's literally reasoning with God. He's interceding for these people. And he's, he's trying to build a case for God to do a work. Now here in Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah is literally praying scripture. He's reminding God of his previous works, mainly of his redemptive work towards the children of Israel. Nehemiah reasons with God using the very words of God and the nature of God. He knew he could rely on God to answer his prayer because he knew what God had promised to do. Here in these verses, uh, Nehemiah, he's quoting Deuteronomy 4.27, where God says, if you, if you turn your back on me, I'm going to scatter you. Then he's also quoting Deuteronomy 30.1-5, through 5, where God says, if you repent and come back, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back to the land. I'll bring you back to the place of blessing. And so Nehemiah is literally going to God, and he's praying Scripture. He's literally going to God and claiming God's promises in prayer. He's also appealing to God's nature and his character. He said, God, these are your people. You love them. You redeemed them. God, you are so powerful. You can do this. God, did you see what he's doing here? He's praying Scripture. He's praying based off who God is. Nehemiah is asking God to do what God is committed to doing. 
Nehemiah knew he was praying according to God's will because he was praying God's words. And he was reasoning with God based off of his nature. He reasons with God for the Israelites based on the fact that they were servants and his people. Uh, recently, I read a book by uh, Donald Whitney called Praying the Bible. I think we have a picture of the book here. It's a little book, but it's, it's, it's a phenomenal book. And in the book, he starts with the premise that when we pray, we're talking to the most fascinating being in the universe about the most important things in our life. But oftentimes, prayer feels boring, and we struggle to focus, and we kind of fumble through it, and we don't really know what we're doing. And in his book, he builds a case that the answer for our struggle in prayer is literally praying Scripture. Here's a couple quotes that he said in the book. He said, When we pray Scripture, what you're doing is taking the words that originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through your heart and mind back to God. By this means, his words becomes the wings of your prayer. He also says, and I love this quote, By praying Scripture, the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help the people of God pray increasingly according to the will of God. Now, caveat, if you claim Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and you try to bench press 500 pounds, you're probably going to drop 500 pounds on your head. Don't do that, okay? Um, So there is an element of we need to keep these things in context, but if we want to pray according to God's will, you don't have to look any farther than his word. I think a great example of this is George Mueller. George Mueller lived... Uh, from 1805 to 1898, and is best known for his four orphanages that he started in Bristol, England. Throughout his lifetime, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans. Yet he never made the needs of his ministry known to anyone except to God in prayer. Mueller had over, get this, 50,000 specific answers to prayer recorded in his journal. 50,000 answers to prayer in his journals, 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or the same hour that he prayed them. Now, if you were to break that down mathematically, it would be like this. That's 500 definite answers to prayer each year, more than one per day, every single day for 60 years. God funneled over half a billion dollars in today's currency through his hands in answer to prayer. And you say, that's insane. But Mueller's own testimony, he said that he would often flounder in prayer and have difficulty focusing his mind. But once he began the practice of conversing with God about what he found in God, once he began praying scripture, he said he scarcely ever suffered with those problems in prayer again. It's been said about George Mueller that when he laid upon, when God laid upon George Mueller's heart to pray for anything, he would search the scriptures to find if there was some promise that covered the case. So he's looking through scripture. He wants to pray for something, but he wants to know that God promised to do this. So you would search for scriptures to find a promise about that. And then when he found the promise with his open Bible before him and his finger upon that promise, he would plead that promise. And so he received what he asked. He always prayed with an open Bible in front of him. Sometimes we feel like, okay, I read my Bible and I put that away and now I pray, but what Nehemiah did and what George Mueller did, and really what you see people do throughout Scripture is they literally prayed God's very words back to him. He always prayed with an open Bible before him. So what I'd like to do this morning is just give us several verses that we can use in our own prayer lives for the building work God wants to do in our own individual and in our corporate lives. Several verses. We're going to have these verses up on the screens if you guys want to throw them up. Uh, I would encourage you to write these down. Go home and read them. But for your personal and family life, if you want to pray that God would spiritually grow you, pray Ephesians three fourteen through 19, where Paul is literally, this is literally a prayer of Paul's. So it's very easy to pray this back to God because it is a prayer. He says, I pray for the church of Ephesus that you would know what it means to be loved by God. 
This is the foundation for everything we do in the Christian life. So for your spiritual growth, pray Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For your marriage, pray Ephesians 5, 22 through 31. Talks a lot about being sacrificial in marriage and loving the way Christ loved. For your marriage, pray through Ephesians 5, 22 through 31. For your kids, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, pray those verses for your children. Say, is it okay to pray that my children obey me? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's God's will. Pray that they would do that. I pray for my son to do that all the time. Sometimes that prayer gets answered. Sometimes it doesn't. That's when I tell my son he's rebellious. I'm just kidding. Um, pray for your children, for your church family, several things. Pray that we as a church would make disciples. Go to the Great Commission and pray through it. We know it's God's will. He told us to do it. So pray through that, to, that we as a church would make disciples. Pray that we as a church would be in unity. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul explains what it looks like for a church to be in unity. Pray this. Pray this for our church. This is the will of God. Pray that we as a church family would model Christ's love. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Often we look at that chapter in context of marriage. Can I let you on a secret? It has nothing to do with marriage. I mean, it's good for your marriage, no doubt, but this is all in context of the local church. 1 Corinthians 13, he's saying this is how a church should love each other. So pray that we would model Christ's love. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, pray that we as a church would sacrificially give. This is the church at Macedonia, and Paul's saying this church, they were so poor, but they gave so much. Pray these things for your family. Pray these things for your church. Guys, leave this up on the screen because there's a few people write these down so they can get them. But if we want to pray according to God's will, we must pray according to God's word. My wife started doing this recently. We, I read the book, and we were talking about it, and she literally said every day she's been reading through the book of Proverbs and just praying through a proverb every day for our family. And she said, I'm praying for things for our family I would have never thought to pray before. Praying scripture, praying the very words of God back to him. God's building work requires preparation and prayer that is built on the foundation of the word of God. And that's exactly what we see Nehemiah doing here in these verses. So we see his access in prayer, his fervency in prayer, his confession in prayer, his reasoning in prayer. Last thought this morning. Let's look at verse number 11. We looked at the first part of the verse already. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants. Here's that desperation coming in that we saw earlier, who desire to fear their name. And get this, this is his goal right here. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day. God, would you make me successful? God, would you prosper me today? And grant me mercy in the sight of this man, for I was a king's cupbearer. He's talking about the king. God, would you give me success? God, would you give me mercy in the eyes of the king? Which leads us to our last thought, his goal in prayer. Nehemiah's asking for prosperity. What was his goal? He wanted God to build. He asked God for success and prosperity. Now, one of the things I love about Nehemiah's prayer here is when he's asking for prosperity, he's not super specific about what it looks like. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a big believer in praying specific prayers. I believe specific prayers equal specific answers. But let's also be okay with God doing what God wants to do, even if that looks different than what we want to do. Nehemiah says, God, I want you to build. I want you to prosper me. However, that's going to look, God. Even if that looks different than what I think. Now, you look at the next chapter, we know Nehemiah had a really specific plan. When the king asks him, he had it all figured out. He had all these plans, but when he goes to God, he says, God, I just, I just want you to prosper me however you see fit. God, I want you to bless me however you see fit. I want success however you see fit. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer said, sometimes prayer doesn't bring the help we're asking for. Instead, it opens our eyes to see the help that God has already brought. 
Let's pray, and let's pray specifically. Let's, but at the end of the day, let's be okay with God building however God sees fit, even if that's different than what we thought. I love how Nehemiah prays for prosperity. He prays for success. He prays for mercy in the sight of the king. But he leaves the specifics of that prosperity up to God. Now, there's two things I want us to notice about prosperity. Um, there's two things that happen uh, that I just want to, and there's, there's lots of things that obviously happen as a result of God's building and as a result of God's blessing. And ultimately, as a result of God answering this prayer, there's two things I want us to notice about this because I believe they're vital as we prepare in prayer and they're vital as we pray to understand these things. First of all, we see that prosperity will bring more work for Nehemiah. I mean, this dude was a king's cupbearer. He wasn't a contractor. He wasn't an architect. He wasn't a builder. He was an official taste tester. (laughs) And his answer to prayer means he's going to have to do work that he's never done before. His answer to prayer means he's going to have to do work that's not in his job description. His answer to prayer is going to mean, to put it plainly, it's going to be hard. God's blessing, God's building is going to be a lot of extra work for Nehemiah. Sometimes we get the idea that prosperity is like, woohoo, better roses, everything's easy, I'm on easy street. And the example throughout Scripture is quite to the contrary. It's going to be work. It's going to be hard. And when God this year, I believe with every fiber of my being, God's going to do an incredible building work here at Ambassador this year. But it's going to mean more work. It's going to mean more people serving. It's going to mean more people reaching out to their communities and stepping outside of their comfort zone. It's going to mean more people are financially sacrificing in ways they've never done before so that God's building work can happen. It's going to mean people being willing to step up like Nehemiah and take responsibility. Uh, P.J. Tobian said, reflect on what God is leading you by his spirit to do in light of your request. Don't just pray for God's blessing and expect it to kind of happen somewhere else or somebody else to do the work. No, when you pray, be ready for the Spirit of God to say, okay, you're part of the answer. Reflect on what God is leading you by His Spirit to do in light of your request. So often we equate God's blessing with the life of ease when just the opposite is true. This prosperity meant more work for Nehemiah. But not only did it mean more work for Nehemiah, it also meant opposition to Nehemiah. It meant opposition. It meant people not wanting this to happen and making sure that they were going to make sure it didn't happen. There was people who were going to fight God's building work. There was people who didn't want to be a part of it. There was people who would rather be comfortable and rather have the life of ease. And yet God's building work, the prosperity, the success that God gives, it meant opposition. And as God builds this year, there's going to be opposition. That's not exciting. I don't even like having to tell you that, but it's the truth. So as we pray and as we prepare, let's just realize God's blessing always brings opposition. Your flesh will give you every reason not to give. There's people who won't want to see God build and do a building work here, and they'll be able to spiritualize it and sound really convincing, but let's just remember this is what God's doing. The world system definitely doesn't want to see the church of God move forward. I mean, we all have reasons that we could give for not serving, Coasting is easy, but it's a slow death. When God wants to do a building work, it'll be prosperity. It'll be success. I believe there's going to be a day this year where we're going to have two services packed out for the glory of God, and that's going to be awesome. But it'll mean more work. There probably will be some opposition to it. But let's be a people who are preparing 
by praying. God's building work requires preparation and prayer. At Ambassador, we are getting ready for God to do a building work. I believe it with every ounce of my being. Pastor said it over and over again. We're getting ready to take some of our biggest steps of faith we've ever taken. Let's be a people who are ready for that. Let's be a people who are preparing for that. The Bible tells us this in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. We are co-laborers together with God. You're a husbandry. You are God's building. We get to be co-laborers together with God. That fact should excite us more than anything else in the world. And the way we co-labor with God oftentimes is through prayer. You say, well, if God's going to do the building work, why do I need to pray? Because we get to be co-laborers with Him. Because we get to be a part of what God is doing. Let's be a people who are preparing in prayer. Let's be a people who are preparing in prayer to work. God, how would you want me to sacrifice? How would you want me to serve? God, what would you want me to do so that your mission and your building work can happen? Let's be a people who are preparing in prayer to give. God, what can I do without so I can give? God, what can maybe I sell so I can give? God, what can I cut out of my life? What can I sacrifice so that I can give next week on Vision Night? Let's be a people who are preparing in prayer to sacrifice. Let's co-labor together with God. Prepare by praying. Guys, we have access to the God of the universe. He is our Father, and He delights when we come to Him. Let's be desperate for him to work. Let's be desperate for him to work in our marriage. I love that. The men's prayer breakfast yesterday, some men stood up and they were desperate for God to work in their lives. Let's all as a church be desperate for God to work. Let's be a people who are willing to confess and get real with God. Let's drop the facade, church. None of us have it all together. In fact, a prerequisite to God's working is you recognizing you don't have it all together. So let's drop the facade. Let's, get, let's confess. Let's get real with God so that he can do his building work. Let's be a people who reason with God and make sure that his word is the foundation for our prayers. Pray the scriptures. Claim those promises. Take some time to look them up and pray these back to God. Pray God's words back to him. God, I know you want to do this because you said you wanted to do it. Let's, be a, uh, let's prepare for God's building work. Church, I believe with every fiber of my being, God's going to do miracles this year. And I know all of us would say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. So let's be a people who prepare by praying. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.